Good morning, everybody. It's Friday, August 20th. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Chilowitz. It's This Week in XR. This week we have with us Ben Lang, uh, who is the co-founder and executive editor of Road to VR, which is uh, the most important and most thorough publication uh, in our particular XR specialty. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Charlie. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. You, you would be uh, part of what we would say is the original OG of VR coverage. I have, uh, I have learned I have learned so much from this guy and I am filled with gratitude for that and also for you taking the time to hang out with us this morning. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been about 10 years for me now. So uh, I have been in here for a little while. <laughs> so um, interesting. Yeah, well, we, we could compare who is the oest of the G's, but let's go to the news. <laughs> a huge story broke yesterday when Facebook introduced uh, Horizons Workrooms. Uh, there were a few things. I assume you were in their virtual press conference in one of the rooms. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I, I thought that, that there were a bunch of things, convergence things that are, were kind of amazing about it. I would love to get your take on it. Uh, just for those of you who have not been following the news. Workrooms is, first of all, it's the first release of Horizons. It's, it's part of Horizons, it's called Horizons Workrooms. So we get a really good look at the Facebook avatars, although they were out there in, in different places. Um, here they are front and center. And Facebook made a big deal about that um, during the demo of Workrooms. The other thing is mixed reality. You, using computer vision, you can actually type in VR and you can actually see what you're typing show up on your PC screen, which is, I've never seen that outside of location-based entertainment, you know, that kind of mixed reality. Um, and then finally, unexpectedly to me, um, and, and by the way, Facebook Workrooms, which is the PC app, Mac and Windows, that, that allows you to do this, um, you know, so you have to do a you know, the setup is a little bit complicated, getting your headset to sync up with the Workrooms app. But, you know, the Workrooms app allows up to 50 video participants um, in the conference, which is, uh, you know, a Zoom competitor. So, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this, you know, made, nobody's really talking about it, but this is kind of their team's play. You know, they've had other things attached to Messenger. Uh, and then finally, they tied it all up to the metaverse, which was again, completely unexpected. Uh, I did not expect the demonstration of mixed reality to <laughs> include um, a explanation of the metaverse, which, which we can get to uh, in a minute. Anyway, Ben, I'm, I'm interested, having sort of set up the what it is, I'm interested in your take on, on what it means. And it looks like we he's, might have had a little- He's been bouncing issue. in and out. So I'll go to you, Ted, so until we get- Yeah, um, well, you know, as, as you and I have now talked about for uh, weeks on end on our weekly jaunt through the metaverse, <laughs> it is still the topic du jour, right? Yeah. Um, and it was uh, actually not a surprise to me that Mark and others made this connection point to the terminology of what their goal set is, is to find a new way to connect people and link people together. And the more exotic aspirational part of, yes, I have a VR headset and I can do this, 
is now sort of opening one of those sort of um, kind of, you know, uh, walled gardens of, we don't want you to just do this if you have a VR headset. We want you to right. be able to do this regardless of the device you have, whether that's a PC or eventually a mobile device, et cetera. Well, they answered an important question that I've been asking, which is what's the relationship of AR and the digital twin of the real world, physical yeah. world to, um, to this metaverse, putative metaverse that we've been talking about. And, and Bosworth, I didn't get Zuck, I got Bosworth in my, um, in your session, in, in my presser room. Um, but, but he went, you know, when he started in on the metaverse, I'm like, oh my God, here we go. <laughs> Facebook is so unbelievably obnoxious with their unified messaging sometimes. It makes you know, it's a big company, up. right? They, they, yeah, it makes me want to throw up. But then Boss started saying things that were true. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> right. He's tethered to reality and is not exactly changing the subject. And I think a couple points he made about the metaverse were very good ones. And again, as you said, things that we've been talking about, which is this can't really be about headsets. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if it's, it's about a, device center of the universe. Yeah. Uh, so Ben is back. Can you hear us, Ben? Maybe not. Give him a moment. Uh, no, wait the, a second. He's, he's asking to be admitted. Oh, okay. Well, welcome to uh, Metaverse Technology. You know. Yes. I've got two Bens up on my screen. Obviously, he's trying every device he can yeah. to get back into the call. Right. And in the meanwhile, as, as he links in, um, there's a good piece of what we what you and I terminology as mainstream media from the, the parent company that I work for, uh, CBS, where yeah. Gail King on the CBS Morning Show did a pretty lengthy, in-depth interview with Mark Zuckerberg. I saw that. And they actually both put on the Quest 2s and, you know, and had the experience together. So it wasn't just an interview about it. They actually did it in front of the world, as it were, because that gets a very large uh, international audience. Uh, and I thought it actually came off good. I thought uh, Mark was very engaging and Gail was very engaging and they linked up and, and really understood it. And also was, were fairly open about some of the critiques about how long it takes to get to these sort of well, success it's, points. And it, it's a beta, right? It was using computer vision and a keyboard. So from time to time, the keyboard would disappear as the computer vision got confused about my hand position. Right. And as I said, there was a lot of friction in setting it up. Uh, of course, it's meant to be a workplace application. So, I mean, if it's complicated and it's work, so what? I mean, they're paying right. me to, yeah. to figure it out. I'm, figure it out. Right. I'm on the clock. It's, I mean, it's not impossible to figure it out, but it's a little sensitive, right? The first time it won't necessarily do what it's supposed to do automatically. But mm -hmm. it, it, you know, suddenly started working automatically, uh, which again shows their... Uh, intent. Uh, let me see. We got a message from Ben that yeah. says, "I think the is issue is with video." Ben, are you there? I am here. I apologize. You do not need your video. Kept crashing. Oh. Sorry about you that. You know what you look okay. like, Ben. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, um, so I'll just do uh, audio only, and I think it'll be okay. Sorry about that. So nope. Ted and I have been vamping on the topic of um, Horizon Workrooms, and um, we were wait waiting to get your take because you were in the presser like I was, and uh, did you? And you got Zuck. I didn't get Zuck. I just got Boz. Yeah, I thought uh, it was really interesting. Um, first of all, kind of that they, you know, the fact that they're calling this uh, Horizon Workrooms is pretty interesting, right? Because we obviously know they have the Facebook Horizon, which is kind of more of a social friendly uh, thing for players and entertainment. I, I've been and then, I've been using Horizon since they launched the beta. Uh huh. 
And then Workrooms, although it shares the same name, is not really as far as they showed directly connected, right? So Horizon, it seems like at this point, is more of a branding thing than it is actually, you know, what they're talking about with this metaverse. There's not really any button where everybody can say, hey, let's go jump in and, and play after our meeting. So that was an interesting thing to see initially. Um, but as far as how it works, I think it's a pretty strong first effort. Um, it's clear that they identified the need to have a computer, you know, your computer in the meeting in front of you uh, as one of the key needs for serious productivity in VR. And, you know, that's obviously done by having a little remote client that runs on the computer and you can have your keyboard and everything. Um, and so that's a, a big advantage over a lot of sort of collaboration apps out there. And it should be said, there are many VR collaboration tools out there. Some hey. that do things, yeah, some that do things that uh, Workrooms does not. Um, but Workrooms is clearly just trying to hit that general, let's get people to feel like they're meeting face-to-face -to, -face to kind of just have collaborative get-together meetings. And for that, I think it could be uh, pretty good. One thing that I um noticed and then quite like is there's sort of a lot of overhead to the process right um if if you or i want to get on a phone call you just hit a button my phone lights up and i pick it up and i'm talking to you right and we could conference call in ted and you know that's just it's so easy uh even if it were that easy to put on the headset it's still a bit of work right but with rook rooms uh there's kind of this additional interface through the web where you have to create a team and you have to invite people um or send them um, an invite, you know, if they're not already signed up, basically, they'd have to set up the whole process. So it's very kind of team and business focused, but for quick impromptu things, for someone who isn't already all set up with a tool, installed the, uh, the stuff to their desktop, um, it's not going to be that easy kind of phone call or conference call like right. experience. And that's right. one thing that I feel like VR uh, is deeply missing. You can find it in third party tools. But that'd be like if you bought a smartphone and you had to download a phone app from someone else that had its own different account. You know what I mean? Right. That's all built into the smartphone. And I feel like uh, VR really needs that built into kind of the headset at the core, not as these separate apps. Yeah, I think that, that that's part of what this kind of aspirational goal of the metaverse is supposed to solve. Right. Is that transportability, that ease of dropping in and connecting together and mm -hmm. and instantly finding each other, but it's still a belief structure rather than a reality, right? Yeah, it definitely feels that way. And yeah, it would be great if we could just have that ability to say, uh, hey, we're in this game, but why don't we hop into workrooms real quick? I hit a button, we appear there and now we're working, right? It's, you know, VR is still, still looking for that seamlessness. And I would have hoped that a company like Facebook who owns the hardware and the software would be making that happen a bit more aggressively. I mean, you know, they've been working on this stuff for years now, but uh, there's still something there where it still feels like kind of a lot of stuff is enthusiast level, um, where you really need the dedication to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, cut through the friction here because I want to use this technology, as opposed to it's just so easy, I have to use this technology. Right. Well, that was the that was the big innovation with Zoom, right? Was one click, right? I send you a link, and we're all in the meeting together. Yeah. And we've seen others attempt it, like Spatial has attempted that sort of interface across. And I, I would say Spatial others. has a lot of the same friction problems that Workrooms has. If mm -hmm. you get past the startup, uh, you can have an interesting uh, experience, although unless you're wearing 
a HoloLens, you can't have a mixed reality experience. Sure, that's correct. Yeah. And, and, and Charlie, I apologize. I went off a little bit on the, on that friction problem, but once you're actually in there, like you said, uh, just like spatial, it's a pretty good experience, right? The, uh, I really liked the, um, the ability to have your keyboard in there. So you, they have a couple different ones that they can track currently and the headset actually detects them. And then it'll put a model of the keyboard on your desk in front of you to make it just so much easier. But it's registered. That's the thing. It's registered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's actually floating right in there. And you can, if you're looking at other people in the room, you see their keyboards on their desk sort of where they are, which is really cool. In fact, they can detect the MacBook keyboard, which, you know, a lot of people have MacBooks. And they kind of put a little model of the laptop almost sitting on the desk there, which is really neat. Um, There's a lot of keyboards, of course, they're not able to track right now. And uh, this, we asked about this when we were Uh, in the, hmm. in the meeting room saying, you know, hey, I wish mine was was track two, um, they said basically it was a much more complicated computer vision problem than they expected. Like a general purpose uh, keyboard tracking um, algorithm has actually sort of eluded them to this point um, because they're just, they're so different and because you put your hands over the keyboard constantly, right? And that's 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 very challenging for computer vision stuff. To sort yeah, every, of every keyboard has a slightly different sizing and spacing of the keys. And like you said, you're mm-hmm. hiding it with your hands and there's different lighting conditions. so. I'm going to give them, you know, a, a little bit of a, a, a wide berth on that because yeah, yeah, I, that, that does seem fair. Fortunately, they thought of a backup plan, which is there's this button you can press on your virtual desk inside of workrooms that cuts out a section of the desk, like right where your hands would be. And when I say cuts out, I mean it's showing the the real pass through view of the camera, sort of stuck onto your desk like a screen. So mm-hmm. if you look down, you actually see your hands and you see your keyboard, even if it's not one of the tracked ones, which mine is not. And that made it pretty much perfectly easy for me to, and I'm a pretty good, I'm a pretty good typist, right? So my, my mom or maybe some of my siblings, they, it might not be high resolution enough, uh, the pass through view that they would be able to look down and say, here's all the individual keys. But for me, just to be able to line up my hands, uh, it felt just like I was typing at my desk for the most part. And I thought that was pretty darn cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Ted, but the, you know, we started out this show, Ben, trying to record it in VR, and it was just too low resolution. And of course, you needed extra people there to, to be a camera and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the real issue was that it didn't look good on video, right? Mm. That, that Altspace, and I really like Altspace, too, and think they've done a terrific job with their avatars as well, because you feel like you're making eye contact, which is so critical to social VR. Uh, and giving you a sense of, of presence. So I, I thought they, you know, they really kind of hit it out of the park with that. Um, you know, the cheek movement, the AI that tracks, you know, the timber of your voice so it can adjust your facial expressions. All of that was, uh, I thought, really beautifully done. And it bodes good things for Horizon. I've been in Horizon since they started the invitation only beta uh, because I'm in it because I'm my side job as a college professor, um, but I had to promise them not to write about it. So I can't really say too much except uh, for the following. Uh, last year when I first got in there, it was not good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just like, oh my God, Facebook is teeing up another whiff in social VR. Um, but now it's a year later and there's more of a there there. They've attacked all the problems that were hindering it. So I think they're probably quite close to opening up. Um, you know, it's a, opening up a social world. Uh, you need a lot more there there than you would think. 
And even mm -hmm. when they had, you know, dozens of worlds, it really isn't enough. Um, you know, I think that's partly why uh, VR chat works so well is that there's so much user generated content there now. And, and so much of it, it has validity and it's good. They started, you know, trading avatars and they went straight to building worlds off of game engines, which is of course, another problem that Horizon has. It's an island, right? It's not uh, buildable the way um, you see a, a platform like Spatial where you can, you know, build private custom spaces. You know, in Facebook, you've got a couple of choices and those are your choices. So uh, I, I have no doubt they'll be changing that as time goes on and upgrading it, but it's still very much of a beta. So we'll have to see whether, um, you know, people are, are willing to endure the friction to, to experience something that is pretty different than anything else you can do in VR. The other big story that I was looking at this week, I don't know if it's a big, you might, guys might not think it's a big story, but Genie, um, which is Corey Granier's company, Ted. We had him as a guest. He's yes. a former Snapchatter. He started or he took over this company called Genie. And Genie does WebXR. Mm -hmm. So they have a very simple interface on your phone, probably the simplest yet. And there are some many good uh, no-code um, XR creation apps for mobile phones. So, you know, I mean, Facebook has one, Lynn, uh, uh, Lynn Studio from Snap is quite good. So, you know, this is not the, the first of its kind, um, but it uses WebXR, which means uh, as long as you have a browser and, um, you know, an Android or Apple phone, it'll, it'll take things from the web and anchor them in your real environment, allowing you to make XR. And, and it's, They've got a good freemium subscription and uh, it's inexpensive unless you're, you know, a commercial enterprise. It works great, I have to say, but it's still the scan the barcode, mm -hmm. you know? And so the question always remains, how will people know to scan the barcode? Yeah, it's, that's, that's become kind of the bugaboo of, of all these AR kits. Right, so, so it's great. You don't have to download an app, but you do have to overcome the friction of, somebody knowing and seeing the barcode and saying, aha, that's how I see the trailer. I hold up my camera to the barcode and get myself in it. Yeah, and I, Ben, you've been tracking this this world as well as the more traditional VR world and how it all fits together. So you may have some thoughts on on that that conundrum of the barcode that we offer. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, you guys are probably aware that, uh, you know, the, the barcode or the QR code is huge in other parts of the world, um, especially in Asia. It seems like there's some on every ad, every, everything that you'll see, you can, there's a QR code and people know exactly what that's for. Mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily for AR in this case, for it could be for anything, but it's essentially linking you to more information about whatever that thing's on. Um, in the US, I do not know why, but the QR code has just been so slow for anyone to use, which is surprising because they're, they're very handy. Um, and it's only been probably within the last, five, maybe four years that I think uh, both iOS and Android finally, finally have default scanning in their built-in camera apps. The, the big problem was you used to have to know what a QR, have a QR code was. Yeah, and you'd have to go download another camera app just to hold it up to you know get that link in. So it's so nice that they finally have that built in. And I don't know if you guys noticed this, and it might be, it's probably regional, but in my area here um, in, in the Silicon Valley area, um, QR codes during the pandemic have actually started to get a little bit of traction. If oh, I yeah. sit down to a table with somebody uh, at a restaurant 
a lot of people see, okay, there's a QR code taped onto the table. They know that there's a menu there yeah. for them. And I, so I, I, I've started to see that in restaurants a lot. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm thinking that maybe, maybe that is going to help with this problem. Um, and especially, you know, the phone AR is not maybe super exciting from an immersive standpoint, but it is cool because it's accessible, right? And so I think that maybe between the pandemic making QR codes a little bit more, um, a little bit more adopted here in the U.S., uh, maybe that will have a knock-on effect for the AR stuff as well. I hope so. Um, but at the same time, so much of the phone stuff, so much of the phone-based AR like that that I have seen tends to be a little gimmicky um, or, or, you know, maybe a little more just kind of here's a quick five minute fun. There's a, you know, here's the character walking around on your table kind of thing. I think once people are creating applications that are bringing real, you know, kind of instantaneous value to someone, you know, maybe you go to, maybe you're on a, a, a tour of uh, historic sites and you scan one of these things and you're getting real good, you know, information instantly presented, visualized in front of you. That's the kind of stuff where I think um, people will say, this is worth doing it compared to it just being this five minute kind of toy experience. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that that when I look at Google Maps and the way they're using uh, AR and computer vision to uh, communicate your uh, not only your geographic position but your orientation uh, is a really, really uh, spectacularly great mm. application for AR. Um, it's invisible and it takes a thing that we're already doing and making it much better. And of course, it represents the convergence of a number of different technologies. So uh, I think the applications like that are exciting. And of course, I think it's exciting that people don't even know it's there. Right. Mm -hmm. right? That's how you know the technology has really become mainstream. And of course, Google Maps is more than mainstream. It's uh, indispensable to our daily lives. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah so, and I, I think it should be said that um, on the, the Google Maps is, is a really interesting point. The AR functionality in there is impressive and it's really actually quite useful if you've used it. Um, though the experience of walking around and having to hold your phone up and it takes a second or two to remember, you know, to know exactly where you are because it wasn't, you know, if you weren't holding right. your phone up, it wasn't seeing the world. Um, I think it should be said that a lot of these phone experiences, almost the exact same experiences are going to become way, way better once we move to uh, headsets or glasses that we're just wearing, right? All right. Well, once I was going to pivot do... to road to, to VR, <laughs> but now you've really got me going. They've opened the kimono. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So tell me what the use case is for AR glasses. I forget. <laughs> so much so much um well i mean you know we're talking about these little toy apps and, and part of part of the reason why a lot of these phone-based ar apps are not like super exciting right now is because of the limitations of the screen you have this tiny window into mm. this ar world that is ostensibly all around you but you only get to experience it through this little window and you have to hold both your hands up in front of you mm -hmm. to do it right and Imagine that's uncomfortable it's it's just yeah people just don't want to do it like it's imagine charlie instead of your glasses that just rest on your head easily to augment your vision imagine if every time you wanted to see clearly you had to hold up a special you know plate right. glass <laughs> on your face you'd, you'd use it yeah, a lot less right? yeah so uh once once we get that capability into glasses that people are willing to wear for all of much or much of their day 
they don't have to think about getting their phone out of their pocket, loading up an app, scanning a QR code, any of that. Literally, if you're seeing a QR code in, in the future, your glasses will already be aware, okay, he might want this information in the next five seconds, so I should have it ready for him, right? And so it's going to move not only from being much more seamless uh, AR experience, but also just more useful. Being able to see the AR world all over your view instead of it through that little window is going to make all of like so many of these little apps like Google Maps just instantly more useful. I, I'll tell you what I think the killer app is. I, I was being flipped before. It is vision correction. Mm -hmm. It is vision <laughs> correction. Take something that I'm already doing, take a 400 year old technology and make it much better. Mm. So Apple is working on a device that, that will uh, that, that takes on that problem, right? It uses real-time retinal scanning to adjust your glasses. So it's so much more than photosensitive lenses, right? It knows if you're driving at night, right? Which would be a huge leap forward because, you know, the amount of friction that it would take for me to charge my phone and, and worry about that is huge. And my, you know, interest in doing so is low. But I think better vision correction would be a killer app that would make me um, go out and buy them right away. Uh, and I don't know, you know, what you're describing is interesting to me. It's not an all day, every day thing. Um, you know, for example, Snapchat, if they made it really good and filled with content and the classes were cheap, I might get them. Um, but I think that's a tough sell to consumers um, because of the scale of the behavior change that you're asking um, people to undertake. I mean, look oh, at mm -hmm. you know how long it's taken watches, you know, digital watches to get to the point where we're like, okay, well, this is really serious now. You know, it's getting to that scale, but it's taken 10 years. I think I think that's a good transition to the name of Ben's site, Road 2, um, because <laughs> I and Ben and I are very much in agreement on this with what he's talking about, is all of these things that are potentially going to happen when you start to move the metaphor of the pocket computer to the wearable computer on your face is a long road to fruitions and perdition, depending on what mm -hmm. you know, state right. of this you so want let's, to do. Let's, let's start the interview portion of the show, Ben, where we talk about you. So this is 15 minutes where you get to be the subject, not the um, interviewer and writer. So <laughs> Sure, sounds good. So you started Road to VR um, in 2011, right? Mm -hmm. So you predate the Oculus uh, release. Did you know about Oculus when you started it? What was the impetus for getting it to VR in 2011 where it seemed deader than a doornail? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Uh, no, so Oculus actually wasn't founded. And uh, even, you know, the early stuff that sort of led up to Oculus's uh, formation had not happened, uh, had not started to happen by the time that uh, I founded the site. So uh, the quick kind of backstory is when I was younger, um, I was kind of a participant in a lot of online message boards. I uh, just was curious about technology as a kid. You know, I was, the, I was my family's kind of computer whiz kid fixing all the <laughs> stuff. It's just kind of a natural curiosity and interest for me. Um, started, to, started to kind of learn how to, how to write and communicate well through doing just a lot of this online messaging through enthusiast technology forums. Um, and eventually I found myself uh, in a position where I was asking for a job from some of these small tech sites uh, that would do news and things. And I said, hey, I, you know, I can do that. I know about this technology. I've read a lot about it. I think I can intelligently write about it. 
Um, and so as a young kid, uh, in high school, actually, I started sort of doing my first little freelance, uh, online writing gigs, really small, uh, websites nobody's heard of. But, um, at the time I was covering things like, uh, the UMPC, which kind of the precursor to the tablet and the smartphone, um, uh, ultra books, which were very new at the time. So I started learning, uh, sort of that process of, you know, gathering information, writing, and, uh, just how to help educate people. Um, once I had done that for a number of years, uh, as I was heading into college, um, I kind of felt like, Hey, I've built up, a, a, a an understanding of how this business works. Uh, I'd be interested to try doing something on my own. And I really just kind of said, said to myself, well, if I'm going to do something on my own, it ought to be something I'm very interested in because this I figured out that this process of writing actually requires a lot of learning. And so I said, if I want to learn about something or if I want to write about something, uh, it should be something I really want to learn about. Mm -hmm. And so there were honestly just a few different kind of totally unrelated ideas. Uh, VR was one of them in a short list of me being like, here's some things I could start, you know, kind of a little blog about and just learn about. VR was one of them. And for one reason or another, it was the one that I picked and said, I'm very curious about this. Um, and really that the curiosity was, where is it? You know, where did it go? And if it's still out there, where where is it going? And that was the whole idea behind, which is maybe once sounded like a weird name to people. But now that <laughs> now that we're known, it, I guess it's not so weird. But Road to VR sounded like a bit of a funky name. But the idea was wanting to chart uh, where VR was at today, today being 2011, and where it might go ultimately in the future. Um, and I believed and still do believe, maybe even more now than before, that you know the ultimate destiny of VR in my mind has to be some kind of matrix level uh, total immersion, right? And we probably won't see in our lifetimes, but I think that that is probably where it's going uh, in the very, very long run. And so I really wanted to you know, chart these early steps. Um, so it was about a year after I founded the site in 2011, really just as a small side project, not having any idea it'd become my full-time career. Um, about a year after that was when Oculus was founded and, you know, they had the Kickstarter, raised a bunch of money, eventually bought by Facebook. And so it was 2014 when Facebook bought them that I would say a lot of people started realizing, hey, VR is not this, you know, failed technology from the 80s and 90s, which was kind of the prevailing thought uh when i had started the site people started turning uh and saying okay something's going on here why did facebook just buy a vr company for you know a couple billion dollars so that's the the short of it and now here i am uh 10 years later it has become the the full-time career and uh it just you know vr keeps growing and it's an awesome awesome place to be working because i am still incredibly passionate and just so curious and so privileged that i get to see the bleeding edge of this stuff up close every day so how do have a I have a, a question for you. Do you remember the, your first VR headset experience? Oh, what VR question. headset you put on and where it was and what happened to you? Because for someone yeah. like you, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah, great question. So one of the first uh, HMDs I ever tried, and I make the distinction, HMD being head-mounted display, uh, between HMD and VR headset, because uh, an HMD is just a, a display you wear, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't become, I would say, a VR headset until it has the sensors to understand how you're moving and to be, really immerse you. 
So HMDs had been around for a little while. And one of the first ones that I ever put on was an, uh, a Sony headset. I think it was called the HMZ T1. And these were sold uh, at the time as sort of personal 3D displays. You put on the headset, you're looking at 30 degree field of view, you know, squares in front of you. There's no head tracking. This is just a head mounted display designed to be basically a 3D TV that you wear. But it was a media um, consumption device. Exactly. Yeah. So not not immersive at all. Really just it's for video playback, basically. And that was interesting to me um, because you could play you you could play games on it. I actually went to a Sony store in Philadelphia where I was going to school at the time, put this thing on my head because they had a demo unit. And uh, I think they had a demo where you could, you know, fire up like a PlayStation game on it. And it's there was nothing. It wasn't a VR game. Right. It was just sort of like looking at a big TV up close. And I was like, oh, this is surprisingly immersive. And at the time, some people were kind of hacking sensors onto this thing. This was, again, still yeah. pre-Oculus. Hacking sensors onto this thing to that's what Skip, some of the That's what Skip Rizzo did for the first Breakmind <laughs> demos. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that was the first HMD experience. And because I knew people were starting to try to hack this thing, like just random enthusiasts, like, hey, what can we do with this headset? People who still believed in the dream of VR and didn't you know, want to see it. Uh, failed. Uh, that was pretty interesting, and I was doing some reporting on that. But once the rift started uh, coming around, Palmer Lucky, prior to formally founding the company, was uh, kind of just this kid on a message board who was very curious about technology and writing about these little DIY projects he was doing. Um, but anyway, that led up to him doing the Kickstarter. And so the first real VR headset that I tried was the original Rift DK1, oh, wow. if I remember correctly. And uh, so that was a GDC, you know, way back when, maybe 2012 or 2013. And they put that thing on me. And I had read and written a lot about it and understood how it worked. But, you know, that first experience of putting it on and uh, playing this early game that was supposed to come out in VR and never did called Hawken, um, standing in the, the cockpit of this mech. I mean, it was pretty mesmerizing, right? I had not seen a wide field of view headset up to that point nor one that had as good head tracking um, as as the Rift DK1, which everybody knew was super low resolution at the time, like crazy low, but it was still magic, even though it was like unacceptably low resolution. You know, if we were to put it on now, we'd say, how did anyone ever do anything with this? <laughs> but um, it was really magic the way that it just felt properly immersive. It was so cool. Um, well, we're, we're, we're almost out of time here. So, uh, and I, I don't want to keep you uh, from uh, getting started with your day too. Um, where, where are we headed, Ben? You know, you've been a student of this for 10 years. Um, so you have a good sense of the past, which we always say is the key to being a futurist. So where, where, where are we in five and 10 years? It's a good question. Um, I think the standalones are the future uh, as far as um, mainstream VR and primarily uh, because they're they're just they're just easier to use. If you're a PC VR user, you're probably an enthusiast. Oh man, don't even get me started. <laughs> I am tangled in wires. Yeah, and and you're willing to put up with a lot of troubleshooting because the PC environment is just complicated, and unfortunately, no one's been able to make that just a, a plug and play 100% of the time experience. There's just a lot to do, and it's not it has not reached the point where it's something that I could recommend to a large group of the people that I know, right? There's a couple people I know that I could, that could say, you're techie enough 
that I'm confident that if you spend the money, you're going to figure this out. But there's so many other people in my life, you know, just looking around uh, at friends and family that it's just like, it's not ready. It's not ready for you. It's you wouldn't use it. It's too complicated. Um, the standalones are reaching a point where so much broader of that audience, uh, I can say, you could see that you could get value out of this. You know, maybe it's still for a younger audience uh, or gamer type folks, you know, people willing to figure out the technology. Um, but it's just so much more broadly applicable because of the ease of use. I'm not going to have to walk somebody through, you know, what is a driver? <laughs> right. um, so I think that those are definitely the future and they're going to be what catches on the mainstream. Um, and I think that that's also going to lead us into this transition uh, into seeing the AR headsets as well, right? So we saw recently that uh, Oculus is now opening up the Quest 2 for third-party developers to start treating it like an AR headset. It has these pass-through cameras. It's a wide field of view. It can track the world. And when you bring that view into the headset, developers can now start building really impressive AR applications. Well, that's, you're making a good point about hardware where AR and VR headsets are, are going to merge together, mm. right? A, a VR headset is, is an occluded AR headset, yeah. right? Well, all you have to do if you have a pair of NREAL glasses, and Ted, I know you're screwing around with a pair now, is put, put the, the, um, the occlusion visor snap the occlusion visor on it and you're in vr it actually in mm -hmm. many ways does vr better than it does ar so <laughs> I, I think i think that's a good uh indicator as well as you point out to the pass-through cameras through through the quest pass-through i think is is uh, got a lot of promise yeah and i think the the big benefit there is that in the future we want these ar glasses to have you know a super wide field of view um and perfect occlusion control over the pixels, right? So we don't have this kind of, everything is 50% opacity problem. AR headsets, or I'm sorry, VR headsets today have that in VR. And if you can do it with pass-through, you get that functionality today that we'll probably have in true glasses in mm -hmm. five or maybe five to eight years. You get that today. And so developers who are working on this stuff can sort of get a preview of what the, uh, what the, the properties of AR that we really want in the future uh, are you can have them in a headset today if you're willing to put up with the bulk um, of the of the VR headsets. But yeah, I think I think that standalones and this AR or or occluded um, pass through AR or occluded AR glasses to VR these are going to make a much more natural you know sort of transition into the head worn AR stuff uh, over the next five years for sure. Well, that's a great place to end our show. Thanks for coming, Ben. It was great chatting with you. Um, whenever I see you at a place like CES, we're both busy, so busy working, we don't get to hang out. But I, I hope we have a chance to uh, change that when we're all in the real. Sounds good, Charlie. I appreciate you having me, Ted, you as well. Thanks, Ben. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good weekend.